This morning we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Yet not I, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I actually copied the lyrics of that hymn out here because I was planning to close the service with that hymn and found out that Jeremy had picked that one already. And uh, so I picked another one, but I, who knows, we may sing it again. I, 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 uh, that's the last thing I heard when I went to bed last night. These great inventions called the phone, you know, you got music, you can play on them. And that's the last hymn I heard. I, I picked it. I went to it. I found it. I picked it. And I listened to that before I, those were my, those were my closing thoughts as I went to the Lord last night in prayer. And well, I heard that first and then went to the Lord in prayer. And, um, It sounds to me like that thought resonates with several in this room, and it ought to. It ought to. Because without Him, we're nothing. And, and, and really all that that means, we're, we're nothing. But with Him, we have all things. And so I want to speak this morning on the subject impacted by grace, taking our thoughts primarily from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul has been addressing some very practical things in this letter that were needed in these struggling churches on the island of Crete. And I'm not going to go into all the background material because the message would take too long, but he clearly is, is, is bringing clarity to truth where there was some confusion. And he says, for the grace of God. Now, he's just talked about the impact of sound doctrine, which is sound teaching or healthy doctrine, healthy teaching in a church where there's healthy, sound doctrine. There's going to be an impact upon the church. And in fact, we're going to dress ourselves differently. You notice what he says in verse 10. He says that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. This is not something we just talk about, debate about wrestle about in our minds. This is something we actually put on. If the doctrine of God our Savior is not evident, if it's not seen in our lives, then there's a disconnect. Something is off. Something's wrong. And and we need we need to deal with that. And so he says in verse eleven, four, he's continuing the thought, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking, expecting for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for, he gave himself, he didn't just Die on the cross. He gave himself. Himself. That's so huge. He gave himself. Sometimes we get so fixated on the cross and all the things we relate. We forget it was him on that. Himself. He gave himself for us. That he might not just something he did, as important as that is. That he might redeem us. From every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, peculiar people, zealous for good works. I am really going to, I have sought to labor in my preparations to keep my thoughts streamlined because as you will be able to tell along the way, there are many trails that we could branch off into, and that's not the purpose of the message today. And so unless I really sense that God is pressing me to, to move into another direction somewhere along the way, I'm going to stick very closely to what I have put down on paper here, believing this is what God has given for us today. You know, typically at some point in a discussion about the grace of God and salvation, someone's going to object 
But if that's true, if we're saved by grace, wouldn't that encourage folks to continue in sin? And we know that was one of the objections that Paul brought up at the end of Romans 5 and into Romans 6. After all, as some would reason, if heaven can be gained by the worst of sinners, what's to stop anyone from being the worst of sinners? Of course, these kinds of questions come from an errant idea that salvation is simply gaining heaven. And if that's your understanding of salvation, you have not understood the salvation that grace brings. Someone expressed what he saw to be the logical sequence of grace this way. Quote, every crook will argue I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Or the similar thought, my business is sinning, God's business is forgiving. Let's get on with life. Someone else said this, why strive to be just as God wants when he accepts me just as I am. And so that's the concept that a lot of folks have of the grace of God. But does the gospel of the grace of God really lead the recipients of that grace to such conclusions? The gospel of the grace of God is the biblical message of full and free forgiveness of sins. And the provision of righteousness in Christ that is undeserved and unearned by the sinner. Any message of salvation that demands that the condemned sinner pursue freedom and acceptance with God by way of his own effort of law keeping or personal sacrifice is law, not grace. And that's not, that is not the gospel of the grace of God. Paul often addressed this religious error with which he was very familiar, wasn't he? That taught that grace plus works were necessary for a right standing and relationship with God. The gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ alone was Paul's message of hope to all. It was his own testimony. Listen to his words. And I, I'm reading from 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. He experienced that grace of God in his salvation and so that he wrote about it. Of course, the Holy Spirit guiding him in the writing of it and giving him the understanding that he had so he could pass that on to us. Verses such as Romans 5, 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Then in verse 20 and 21 of Romans 5. As he brings his thoughts in that chapter to a that portion of the chapter to a conclusion. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he concludes in chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, that gift of grace, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace in salvation is 
If I were to give you a definition, this is what it would be. Grace in salvation is God's undeserved and unearned provision for every condemned sinner who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It has nothing to do with you. You just mentioned that, Jeremy, didn't you? And then in verse 28 of Romans 3, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And so if our preaching of the gospel of the grace of God does not lead to someone asking, shall we sin that grace may abound, we're probably not placing a proper emphasis upon grace. We must not alter the message of the gospel of grace in order to protect its misuse. But we must warn against its misuse. And I believe this, at least in part, is what Paul is doing here in Titus chapter 2. In verses 11 through 14. The saving grace of God that has appeared to all. He states in verse 11, all, all men. He's just, he's just, he's speaking of Jew and Gentile. He's speaking of old men, old women, young women, young men, servants, all classes, all categories, all men. That's the context in which he's saying what he's saying here. There is no category of human being that's left out of this Manifestation of grace. And this saving grace of God, and I think that's another another way to actually translate this. If you were to see the original, you would see that the first word in the sentence is not for or the grace of God, but it's actually appearing. The word appearing. And and what is appearing is the saving grace of God to all men. This grace of God, salvation to all men, it's the saving grace of God. And it powerfully impacts every recipient. In our text, Paul is not addressing our position in Christ. He does so in other places. He does so, in fact, in Romans chapter 6. He's speaking of our position in Christ as he unfolds another in another context, the idea of grace. That's not the leading thought here in this particular passage. Nor is he talking about our future perfection. He's talking about the impact of God's grace in this present world or this present age in which ungodliness and worldly lusts abound. The grace of God, he says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This grace of God that he has in view has appeared. What is he talking about? This grace of God appearing. In verse 13, he uses the same word appear when he says looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I believe we are right to conclude that he is speaking here of the first and the second coming or appearings of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. In fact, the hymn writer of that hymn that we sang, what gift of grace is Jesus? They had that in mind, didn't they? What gift of grace? Grace is not just some idea or concept or commodity or something that's on a shelf or in a dictionary. It's a person. Grace is personified in Jesus Christ. Preacher, where do you get that idea? 
Well, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Roman, or excuse me, John 1.14. And then in verse 17, and actually verse 16, he, he speaks of grace for grace or grace unto grace. Grace is full there in, in that first chapter of John. Verse 17, he says, for the law was given through Moses. It's not that there was no grace and the Mosaic economy or in the Old Testament, but but the emphasis was the law. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so the grace of God appearing is Jesus Christ appearing. He appeared the first time and he will appear. First Peter, chapter one, listen to this. And this idea of the grace of God appearing, you notice he says that the glorious, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is no less speaking of the grace of God that will appear. And Peter puts it this way of this salvation. The prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. This is first Peter one, 10 through 12. The grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is the grace that has come to us by way of this one Jesus who suffered for us and who is actually coming again. And so Peter goes on to them. It was revealed that not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's that's that appearing that is yet to come. Grace is going to meet us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's full of it. But then there is an experiential appearing of the grace of God. That is, when the Holy Spirit brings to you this grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you enter into a relationship with God in salvation. Look at Titus chapter 3. And verse four, but when the kindness and the love of God, our savior toward man appeared. Now, surely this. In a general sense, is referring to the first appearing when God came in Jesus Christ and and this love that he's talking about here appeared, this grace appeared. But then he goes on, verse five, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. So it seems like here at this point, he's talking about the application of that grace in our lives, the experience of it. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which is a continual work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, whom he poured out on us. Abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Did you, did you hear that? God, we, we might think Father here poured out abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Poured it out how? This is the operation of the Holy Spirit. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then in verse 8, he speaks of those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works, which is to a large degree what he's dealing with in Titus 2, 11 through 14. So why did Jesus, why did grace and truth come? Why did grace and truth appear? Back in our text, verse 14 says so, who gave himself for us just to get us to heaven? 
Well, that certainly is a destination. I'm thankful that that is a destination. But this purpose of God is, is, is more than that. He who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people Zealous for good works. And if you read that, you know, he's not just talking about a positional kind of idea here. He's talking about something very practical. Grace delivers us. Grace impacts us. Grace stirs us. Grace moves us. It affects us. Paul is clarifying the nature of the salvation that the grace of God brings. It's not salvation by law, nor is it salvation unto lawlessness. Did you notice that? It is salvation that brings us into a life-changing relationship with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God is the operative power of God in Christ through the Spirit in this present age. Let me give that to you again. I believe it's important to fix this kind of thought, definition of grace into our minds because it isn't, I don't think, predominant in the thinking of our religious culture today. The grace of God is the operative power. We might say the effectual working. The operative power of God in Christ through the Spirit in this present age. Did you hear a triune presentation of our salvation there? It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is involved in the salvation of His people, bringing us from where He found us into the relationship that we find ourselves to the life that He has ordained for us here and into eternity. That's salvation. And so we see the Apostle Paul says the grace of God is teaching us. That this grace, the grace of God that brings this, this salvation. The grace of God that brings the salvation that verse 14 speaks of. That, that which the Father sent His Son and... The Holy Spirit is sent to apply. The Son accomplished. The, the, the Spirit applying this. It is, the, it is God working this salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us. Teaching us to live out the salvation that it brings. Teaching us. Instructing and training us. That's what the word teaching means. Bringing us from where He finds us to where He intends for us to be. And who is the teacher? Who is the teacher? It's the grace of God. That For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us the grace of God that has appeared. And is this not the Lord Jesus sent by the Father and now by the Spirit working in us? Is this not the one who is teaching the grace of God? The God of all grace, as Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 5. The law can instruct and the law can demand, but only the grace of God is able to save. And so Acts 20 and verse 32, Paul said it this way. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able dunamis. That's a word of power there. His grace is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, a sanctification, which is by grace. Grace doesn't demand and then wait for you and then condemn you when you fall short. Let 
We have a better teacher than that. Amen? A, a glorious teacher. We, we have a teacher who is grace and truth. Jesus Christ Himself through the Spirit. Grace works in you too. Will and do. And will not abandon you if you falter. What's interesting is this word that's translated teaching here, teaching us that. It's the same word that is translated chasten in Hebrews chapter 12. And that's interesting. And that, that's part of the instruction, isn't it? That's part of, part of the teaching. It isn't just a chalkboard lesson. There's something more going on in this teaching. There's an involvement. It's not just, here's the letter, do it. It's, here's the instruction, now I'm going to help you. I'm going to work with you. And I'm even going to chasten you if necessary to bring you to where I want you. But grace involves itself in our lives, you see. Because it's not just an idea. Now, maybe I'll just throw this parenthesis in here. It, grace does hold ideas. But if you stop with just ideas, you have stopped short. Hebrews 12.6 says, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. It isn't grace. I mean, you know, we struggle to say things the way we say it. We, we try to explain, the, 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 for example, the attributes of God. And you know there's discussion around here about those things. And we struggle. We read somebody and we say, well, we like the way they say it. And I don't like the way he says it. And I like the way this one says it. Listen, we, this struggle has been going on from the beginning. I'm talking about from the beginning of those who are trying to explain what they are reading from the revelation of God. So, so this, when we, when we hear for whom the Lord loves, He chastens, isn't love related to grace? Isn't grace related to love? And do we have to get all bogged down with, with, you know, we, I get kind of weary of trying to categorize things when it comes to God. I'm kind of sick of it actually. Categorizing things. God is who He is. God is who He is. And we worship God as He is. And as He makes Himself known, whom the Lord loves. And that, that's a, that's a, grace is an expression of that love, is it not? Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. That, that's grace. That's love. And scourges every son. Grace doesn't withhold the chastening or the scourging. Love doesn't withhold the chastening or the scourging. That's what moves our Father. That's what moves the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what moves the Holy. That's what moves God, the Holy Spirit. That's what moves God to deal with us as He deals with us, to bring us to where He wants to bring us, teaching us. Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, Jesus says, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. There's the response of us to him. I'm just really getting at this point. I sort of digress there for a moment, but really I'm getting to this point. The grace of God is not passive, but it's operative in, in training us up in Teaching us. So, so what is the goal of grace in training or teaching us? Well, we don't have to guess at it. Verse 12, teaching us that. A word of purpose. You could, you could say in order that. It's a purpose word. This is what this teaching is aiming at. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Denying in order that we might live. And so you see a negative and a positive here, don't you? Negatively, he says, teaching us that in order that, in order that doing the one thing, we might do the other thing. And so the, the one thing we must do is deny in order that we might live. You, you can't live without denying. 
And you can hear repentance in here. Which is one of the graces, isn't it? One of the graces of God to His people in salvation. Grace turns us from our former life. And so the word denying. And that's a strong word having nothing to do with it. Refraining from it. Rejecting it. This is the distinct impact of the grace of God in salvation. And if, and if you haven't seen these things operating in your spirit, in your mind, in your life, then you need to question whether or not the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to you. Because it will teach you these things. It will work in you these things. He names two things here, and these are really categories. These are, these are generalizations. There are a lot of, lot of um, details you could add to any of these words that he uses in verse 12. He's not, he's not fleshing out every idea there is to flesh out, but he, he's saying there is something fundamental that happens when grace appears. The grace of God that brings salvation. And he uses this word ungodliness. It's not used a whole lot in Scripture, but it's the idea of irreverence or carelessness toward the true and the living God. An an attitude of carelessness toward God. A, A spirit of irreverence toward things that are holy. That are godlike. And is this not the characterization of this present age? It is. It's the characterization of this age. And, and I mean, we are, I don't want to digress here, but we don't have to look very far to see the evidence of ungodliness. We, we're, we're swimming in it. I, I mean, th- this is like an island in the atmosphere of ungodliness. If you are tuned in at all, Brother Avery, you're, you're seeing it downtown, aren't you? The celebration of the very things that are an abomination to God. And calling it pride. It, it, it's flipping everything on its head that, that has anything to do with godliness. And, and by the way, we're not just talking about a moral standard. We're talking about the one who gave, who created, who, who put this all in motion and did it in a wonderfully right and perfect manner. But there's a spirit of irreverence and carelessness toward the true and the living God. And it's manifested in different ways and Different cultures in the culture that Paul is writing here, the island of Crete, there were, you know, they had concepts of God. Just like folks have concepts of God today. And they make their choices and they live their lives according to those concepts of God. This is why Paul, at the beginning of the letters, there's a reason why he says, God who cannot lie. Of course, we read that and we think, well, of course that's true. You know, that's one of our systematic theological points. But there's a reason why he says that. Those on the island of Crete came from a long history of worshiping gods who were known for lying, conniving, manipulating. And they patterned their lives after that god, Zeus. It's very possible that Zeus had his origin there on the island of Crete. The concept of Zeus, one of the Greek gods. And there are other things that Paul says in the letter to these who would be leaders of the churches in Crete that dealt specifically with problems within their culture. And we are living with specific problems in our culture. And we and and so we need to address those specific problems, accenting that about God, which meets those issues as Paul did there, God who cannot lie. There are other things he could have said about God, right? There are many things we could say about God. But there are certain things we say about God in certain contexts and cultures to meet a specific need. But you see, if your attitude is 
ungodly. There's a spirit of ungodliness. You don't really care. It doesn't matter. It's an attitude. And brethren, this is where grace finds us. It's, it's where it found those who were believing on the island of Crete. It's where grace finds you and me today. And there may be religious ones today, just like there were on the island of Crete, who profess to know God. But did you notice what he said in verse 16 of chapter 1? He says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. That's the very same word. Grace is teaching us denying ungodliness. Those who don't know grace can profess to know God, but in their works they actually deny him, negate him. In their life, their actions, they're really saying God isn't. That's why we come up with this word practical atheist. A practical atheist is someone who's living as if God doesn't exist. Grace teaches us to deny, to reject the spirit of this world. You see, to us, to whom this grace of God has appeared in salvation, God is no longer a distant deity or a creation of our imagination. We see, we have seen, we continue to see, and we continue to look for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we turn to the beginning, as the Thessalonians did, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, we continue to do so because the grace of God continues to appear to us in this salvation. Paul adds to this idea of ungodliness, worldly lusts. And they really do go together. I mean, everyone has a God. Everyone has something they are. They're worshiping and worldly lusts fits the mind and the life of one who has ruled God out, the true and the living God out. And this speaks to the cravings of our flesh that the world seeks to satisfy by way of the world apart from God. You know, the creature is worshipped above the creator, as Paul said in Romans chapter one. In chapter three, he spoke of there is no fear of God before their eyes. Worldly lusts. This is that spirit in life that is dominated or controlled by desires related to this present world. And this includes every pursuit in this world with no thought of God. It's the idea that's rampant in our culture. And I think it's even greatly affected the religious culture. Maybe it's affected you and me. If it seems good to society or to you, if it feels good or right, pursue it. Do it. After all, happiness, your happiness or your cons, your con, don't get me wrong. God is not after your misery. Blessed. I mean, read the Beatitudes. Blessed. That, that's that's another way of saying happy are those. And he and he gives that idea, but not happiness according to worldly lusts, according to your concept of what happiness is. Happiness is sought by way of satisfying every fleshly lust under the influence of worldly culture. And so these worldly lusts, which are really much like the fleshly lusts that Paul says works their way out, he lists them in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. This is what's being celebrated in our culture. This is worldly lusts. This is ungodliness and worldly lust. The celebration of these things. Idolatry, sorcery. Now listen. Hatred. Contentions. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. And that word heresies has the idea of divisions that are caused by party spirits. 
I'm, I am of, and I am of, and I, and there's division. That's nothing but worldly, the, the spirit of worldly lusts at work. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you, Beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. No, brethren, the grace of God teaches us to reject this spirit, reject this spirit of this world, which gets in the way of living the life of holiness, godliness, which, by the way, is really the life of Christ in you. It is not simply moral behavior. It's the life of Christ in you. It's living out that spirit worked grace in you. While the saint of God is still affected by temptations of the lust of the flesh, grace teaches us to not look longingly toward this world for our happiness. I was, CJ was telling me about his grandpa. His grandpa talks about looking forward to heaven. You know, he's, you know, he's, he's having difficulties and it's not so much, it's not so much heal me now so I can keep living in this life and enjoying all the fleshly pleasures of this life. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with enjoying everything that God has given to us in this life to enjoy in the way that He's given it to us to enjoy. But when those enjoyments get ahead of our relationship to Him, we're going to see that in a moment, something's wrong. And the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Of course, this is that spirit of repentance. But brethren, the grace of God is not all about denying in fact, denying is a way to something else, isn't it? It's, it's as, I, as I suggested earlier, teaching us that, in order that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We should live. That's what we should do. And the three following words are adverbs. They're, they're qualifying. They're describing. They're giving to us the spirit that ought to be guiding us, controlling us as we live. You see, if you're only denying, then you're living in a sort of a vacuum. That There's nothing to take the place of that which you are denying. But we deny so that we can move forward. And by the way, there is a battle going on here, lest I not mention this later. There is a battle going on. This is a this is not a one time denial, a one time decision. It is the life in which we are living and the grace of God is teaching us these things as we're as we're engaging in this world, engaging in this life, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, which is all around us. The spirit of this age. So that we should live. Continue to live. Soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So grace transforms the attitude and the atmosphere of our present life in this world. He says that we should live soberly. That's speaking to something that has happened inside of us. There's an inward spirit of change. That word soberly speaks to the idea of being self-controlled. It's, it's speaking of a sound mind. You're not carried away by sensuality. Listen, the life of grace does not begin on the outside. It begins on the inside, tracking back to what we heard Jesus say in Matthew 15. It's not that which goes into a mouth that defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, that which originates inside us. And that's where grace works. The grace of God that brings salvation this is a life of temperance. And this is really a life of the Spirit, isn't it? 
Isn't this what Galatians 5.23 tells us? He talks about the works of the flesh there, but he doesn't stop there. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, faithfulness, temperance. That's the word here. Sober, sober-minded, temperance. Against such there is no law. Grace teaches you to live under the leadership of the Spirit, not the flesh, which is what he's talking about in Galatians 5, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. By the way, this is something we ought to be, we ought to be waking every day with this on our minds, a fresh endowment of this grace from the Spirit to enable us to live, live soberly and then righteously. Soberly is that which is working on the inside of us. Righteously is that which is expressed from us. The emphasis is upon this isn't this isn't talking about uh, righteousness, which justifies It's not a legal righteousness. This is the practical righteousness, that which is worked out by Christ in us, the fruit that comes forth from us by the spirit in us in our relationship to others. In other words, you could use the word horizontal here. This is living this grace of God that brings salvation works in us in such a way that we are living righteously. We are concerned about how how we manifest ourselves and how we relate to one another. We're concerned to operate in a just fashion, in a right fashion. We're concerned about, we care about how we treat our neighbors, especially our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but anyone. We are, we are living out this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ taught by His Spirit through His Word. And so grace teaches you to care. How you treat others. Is is grace teaching you? And then he says godly. Not only internal, not only horizontal, really. There's a sense in which we could have begun with this last one because it's the counterpart to the first one. Ungodliness. And now he says godly. It's the counterpart. It's 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 that, that first one. Take away the negation. Take away the negative. And this is this is the idea of vertical. And so we have we have that which is going on inside of us. We have that which is is working out of us. But where does it come from? It, it comes from that vertical relationship that we have with God. That's what godly. Is we should live godly in this present age. Again, it's not so much living up to some standard that has been given to us as it is living with this spirit of reverence and godly fear, which is going to lead us to our God and lead us to listen to grace and truth. To wisdom, to him who is prophet, priest and king. Grace teaches us then. To live with reverence and godly fear, to be full of Him, with a longing to honor Him in all of life. I think probably, if you want a summary idea, it would be this, that He matters more than anything else. In this life, living soberly, that you should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So it's not the age which means the most to you. It's not what you can attain in this age that means the most to you. It's not what others are saying that means the most to you. It is, it is Him whom you have come to know and love. The Lord Jesus Christ. This teaching of grace then is perpetual in this life until we experience the perfection of grace that is guaranteed at the appearing of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's where we're headed. Which... Leads us to the final point that I just will briefly touch upon.
This grace of God that brings salvation revolutionizes our perspective in this present world. It changes it really changes everything, but it's our perspective that it changes, I think, fundamentally as much as anything else. And this is where I believe so many Christians and I would say genuine believers maybe come short in is the changing of perspective. And I know a lot of things could be said about that, but just looking at this text, notice what he says, teaching us. That denying, so there's this spirit, there's something in us that that recoils and reacts in our spirit against the spirit of the age, ungodliness and worldly lust. We've turned from that which we once gravitated to, that which we lived in the midst of. And it wasn't that much of a problem to us. You hear people say today, why don't you, what difference does it make to you what they do? What difference does it make to you how the culture goes, you know, just leave them alone. But it, it, it produces in us a, a distaste because we know it is distasteful to, to our God whom we've come to know and love. And, and this is His world. And it's, and it's gone sideways. And, and, and so we, we, we live. We're taught by the grace of God that brings salvation that's appeared to us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the pre- this present age. But notice verse 13, looking. There's something that's going on in the, in the midst of this, this work that's going on in our lives, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're being taught by the grace of Him who is coming again. He who appeared the first time, and in that first appearing, He gave Himself for us. Verse 14. He has appeared to us in our lifetime by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this grace is working in us now. But He's coming again, and we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There, there's something remaining. I'm going to talk more about this next week, Lord willing. But grace lifts our mind's eye above this present world that is passing away. Paul mentioned this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he was talking about marriage. He's, you know, that's a chapter we go to to, and when we're discussing divorce and remarriage and et cetera, et cetera, and he's, he gives instructions concerning those things. But then he gets to a point in that chapter where he says, you know, even those of you who marry, you, you, there's a sense in which you should live as if you're not married. Remember that? And he's talking about living your life with this perspective that this world is passing away. And so he says, using the world, but not Misusing or abusing this world for, he says, the form of this world is passing away. The form of this world. There is a new world coming. There's a new earth, right? A new heaven coming. But as we know it right now, it's changing. It's passing away. So we don't love the world or the things of the world. First John chapter two. We don't love the world as the world loves the world. The love that we have has changed. Our, our perspective has changed. The love of the Father in us, which is the grace of God in us, turns us from loving what is passing away to what is forever. And that's what we're living for. And by the way, that doesn't come, you know, I hear people criticizing Christians and they say, you don't care what happens to the planet. You don't care. You're just looking for something out there pie in the sky. I said, well, hey, time out here. Hang on a minute. If you're a Christian and you don't take care of the planet, I mean, if you're abusing that which God has given, and that includes this earth, if you're not taking care of what God has given, 
you're not living the way you're not living soberly, righteously or godly in this present world. We aren't so fixed on what's out there that we just abuse what's here, do we? Or misuse what is here. No, not at all. I'm afraid there are some Christians, though, who because of the way they talk, it makes it sound like that's the way we live. But our perspective is different from this world so that planted earth isn't what we worship. And so, as I mentioned, was it last week, when we look at the blooming flowers and the variety in creation, we don't fixate on that and ignore the creator, the one who gave it. We are moved to worship him. Our perspective changes in this present world. And it is this perspective of grace that fills us with hope that affects us deeply in this present life. Grace teaches us to live. It teaches us to live in this world looking with expectancy for another world. And brother, not just for another world where everything is perfect. That's true. Thank God for that. He reveals it to us. And we ought to have an expectation and look forward to that. But it's more than simply about living in a perfect world. It's about living with Him. Uninterrupted communion. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It is this expectation for Him who gave Himself for us that affects our lives now. And a lot of other things can be said about this. But it is in this relationship with Him that fruit is born. Fruit comes forth in our lives. And there is a, a zeal in us for good works. There is, a, there is this desire. And He says, he ends verse 14, zealous for good works. The one who is the source of grace is the desire of our hearts. And if He is the desire of our hearts, then this desire stirs up a zeal to please Him through good works now. And so our, our perspective in life changes. And boy, we could, I could launch off into all kinds of thoughts here. I mean, that perspective changes so much so that you are going to relate to anyone and everyone, including your spouses and your, you, you know, you're your in the workplace and every every area of your life is going to be affected by this change of perspective. Now, let me bring this to a conclusion. While it is grace that is working in us, this was mentioned in the last hour, this idea but while it is grace working in us, who is it that's working? Who is it that's working? It's you. It's you. It's you. You are responding. Who is it that's denying? Who is it that's living? Who is it that's looking? It's you. And so I wouldn't just simply say you have a responsibility, though that's true. I would say this is true. When the grace of God brings salvation has appeared to you. The spirit of grace and truth, the spirit of Christ is so working in you that you are denying, you are living, you are Looking, you are zealous and increasing in that zeal for good works. Beloved, I think this is what the Holy Spirit is getting at through the words of the Apostle Paul. This is the saving grace of God. This is the saving grace of God that is teaching the redeemed people of God to live in this world. And so the question is, has the grace of God appeared to you? Have you have you heard any has your mind and heart resonated at all at all with the words that you have read from Scripture here this morning? Is the grace of God working in you? If so, you know, you know, your salvation is not dependent on you. So you're not going to leave here today and say, well, I better get busy and do more works so that I can prove that the grace of God is in me. 
Isn't that kind of the way it works a lot of times? We, then, we, then we jump over into this performance-based lifestyle. And then we come up short and we feel like God's going to kick us out of the family. That's not the way it works, is it? But if the grace of God has appeared to you, you know your salvation is not dependent on you. But it's dependent upon Christ in you. His grace working by His Spirit to bring you along to the end for which He redeemed you. And you will be, you will continue to be impacted by grace. You see, there are those who say that they've been saved by grace. But then at some point in the journey, they fall away. We've heard it lots of times. You know, I'm talking about even preachers falling away. What's going on there? What's the conclusion to that? The only conclusion that I can come to is that the grace of God that brings salvation has not appeared to them. They have been impacted by something. But it's not this grace of God because this grace of God is the operative power of God in Christ through the Spirit, through the Word, doing something, working something out in you. Manifesting something in you that moves you to actually look forward to the appearing of your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for you, right? To redeem you, to deliver you from lawlessness and produce in you a zeal for good works. Father, I pray that You would 